0: And the number one cause of disability, according to the World Health Organization worldwide, and now in the U.S. as of 2020, before the end of t- pandemic, is depression.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Health Theory. I am here with Dr. Drew Ramsey, who's an author, and one of my favorite things in the known universe, a nutritional psychiatrist. Dr. Ramsey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. I love that nutritional psychiatry is one of your favorite things. We're finally calling it that. We're a real field, and it's really great to be here. Dude, man, my pleasure. And as I look around and think about what's going on right now, especially, but just in general, the mental health epidemic really terrifies me. And as somebody who's an active clinician, what are you seeing right now? Like, Is this a time where things are ratcheting up, or do I have a delusional view? You're absolutely
0: right, there's an epidemic. I mean, everything's going up. Depression is up, we've posted some statistics on our Instagram about a study recently showing male depression up 60,
1: 70%. Whoa, over what time
0: period? That's over the last year. So what can we do to keep ourselves mentally fit and what can we do to stave off depression? And that's where nutritional psychiatry comes in because really, to date, along with exercise, but really the nutritional psychiatry date is the most compelling and the strongest. Because like you're already eating, and in terms of an intervention from public health, that's awesome because we can shift that. But but food and nutrition, there's a study that came out of Vietnam uh, that looked at over ten thousand people, cross-sectional studies. You know, not the strongest data, but but strong data in terms of looking at a correlation between nutrition and depression for people who went into quarantine. And they found that the risk of depression during quarantine, if your nutrition is bad or the worst compared to the best, it went up over 1,000%. Oh, God.
1: So, exactly. So, this gets to an interesting intersection that drives my fascination with this, which is… All right. As somebody who's struggled with anxiety, I can tell you diet exacerbates it, but I still need a trigger of some something of an emotional nature. So it becomes really hard to tell. Is this something that I ate or, you know, have been shifting my microbiome over the last month in a direction that's not very useful? Or is it I'm just freaked out about this thing? How do you help people begin to tease that out? I think that's
0: the question that we're in and and, and that nutritional psychiatry tries to help people sort out because it can be all of those things. I am first and foremost a therapist. I love long form listening to people's free flow, unconscious, and helping them find the meaning in it and the purpose in that. So when you tell me there's a – your hum of anxiety, I would say, one, that's probably one of the reasons you're quite successful – it's a, uh, I, I wrote a piece for Men's Health called Your Anxiety Is Your Superpower. And, and, and I think that's true for a lot of people. And then when it perks up, as you know, I would say part of you taming or mastering or say riding your anxiety, is you find the meaning in that. right? And so that's one reason it goes down. Then there's that what I consider more biological anxiety. You wake up in the morning with a panic, your heart is racing. Now, again, that can be psychology. There are things that do that to us, that freak us out, whether it's grieving or loss or parenthood or intimacy. I mean, that that happens, but there's something when it's biologic that we, we really feel, and that's where I think food really does play a role. If you think about your brain as the lens through which you're filtering all this data, right? Is, is the lion on the screen a lion on the screen, or is it actually in the room with you about to eat you? Your, your brain is very good at sorting that out, um, and and if we think about the quality of that lens really being influenced by a few things or a few processes, one you mentioned like the microbiome, that's really talking about inflammation, right? How does this word of inflammation affect the brain? If we think about it in terms of my favorite concept these days, neuroplasticity, right? Brain growth and, and brain change over time. Uh, definitely food influences that. There are a bunch of uh, specific you know, molecular mechanisms where we can see that now. And, and so that's how I think about the way that we try and sort that out is thinking, have there been changes in your diet? Sometimes I think People are like, oh my gosh, my anxiety is so much worse. It's because I'm just, I freaked out. I'm just eating comfort foods. I've eaten pasta for three days. I haven't had a vegetable. I'm just drinking soda again. Or I've had a bunch of, one of my patients is having problems sleeping and really nervous. And then she's scolding me. She's like, you know, you say you're you're nutritional psychiatrist, She have not asked me about my food in a while. And I was like, touche. I was like, good point. And she's drinking like six cups of coffee a day. And, and not that like bad, bad you. Coffee's bad. I don't believe that's not nutritional psychiatry. That's what separates us from everybody else in the food advice business. You love coffee? Great. I'm going to figure out how to make coffee work for you, Tom. I mean, but,
1: but more of- Do you ever try oh, to what put do we limits do about- on that, though? Because I, when I hear you in particular talk, you are so kind- and so, like, hey, you like uh, ice cream and coffee? Like, we're going to find a way to make ice cream and yeah. coffee work for you. that's like one but of the best desserts, the espresso isn't, over the ice cream. Oh, love that. Isn't there a point, though, where that, like, makes it so hard to, to actually address the problem that you, without judgment, I'm not saying they're a bad person for doing it, but that it's like, yeah. if somebody comes to you and is like, man, I'm really tired of having a broken hand, and you're like, yeah. I'm no judgment on you hitting your hand with a hammer, but maybe we should stop that. Like that's how I really think about even in my own life. For instance, dude, you can't imagine how much I love those white monsters. They're calorie free and I used to drink three a day plus two Diet Cokes and mm-hmm. it was glorious you Lost a lot of weight i was so lean you can't imagine it was amazing was this one of the
0: most successful periods of your life perhaps
1: it actually was one of the most successful periods of my life but it was my anxiety was through the roof and oh. i didn't at the time like correlate the two so now that i can see literally if i drink a monster i can feel that the sense of anxiety start in my belly it's so weird It's weird that I didn't notice before, but like the thought of trying to eliminate my anxiety without eliminating the drinks seems next to impossible.
0: Can I help you change via kindness via being a hammer? Please. Yes. And I I, I think that that it's a really good question. I think some people do need the hammer. I think in, in the wellness and food world, that's fear. That I'm going to get you to change because I'm going to tell you about the toxins in your diet. I'm going to tell you how you're shrinking your brain. I'm going to tell you how you're in some ways broken. I just think that's probably what you're sensing is I'm a, I'm a clinician. And I just sit with real people and real patients. You see somebody who's come in and they're on a bunch of strange supplements and eating really weird food and they have a lot of bad anxiety. I do hear what you're saying and you're right. There are foods that people do need to cut out of their diet. Diets need to drastically change. I don't want my kindness to any way way obscure the laser-like disdain I have for the modern foodscape, for how much it's crippling our health and mental health, for how ridiculous it is that we um, focus on the healthcare crisis without the food crisis. There's definitely things that I want people to do, but I want it to come from them because that's what I believe I believe creates lasting change that's in some ways what the new book is really feel what's different is really asking people will you please uh, uh, take a step back from whether kale is right for you or not or whether you should take a fish oil or supplement or whether you should eat keto and just look can we think about you as an eater like what is like where are you from like what does that mean to you what do you like
1: are you trying to get at something emotional there, or are you trying to get at um, like a lot of people will say, whatever your ancestors ate, you're going to have a microbiome that's tuned to that? Of a feeling, you're talking more emotionally here.
0: You know, I'm talking to both of those things. Our ancestors had different microbiomes because they led a more dish uh, natural lifestyle, both in terms of food, in terms of sleep, and you know, lots of lots of good things for your microbiome in in the ancient world and in the modern world on the right types of farms. Um, I think the emotional part is really important because it's why diet culture fails and it's why diets fail. It's because while people look towards advice and expertise over time, natural psychological maturity and development requires us to create our own stance. So you, Tom, are your own eater, you're your own kind of searcher and explorer of culinary space based on your values. You know, I hope... Um, part of people moving beyond some some of the symptoms of depression and anxiety and how those end up relating to food it really comes to, to people giving themselves a more accurate diagnosis and instead of
1: motivations okay so let's go through then some of the things that are actually triggering that and what i want to do is say okay that we're beginning to in your field of nutritional psychiatry we're developing for people old enough to remember this reference In Wheel of Fortune, there was a final puzzle that you had to solve, and nobody wants to look like a jerk, so everybody started guessing the exact same things. R-S-T-L-N-E. Those were the letters. Everybody picked it. So finally, the show cottoned on to the fact that everybody picks the same letters. So let's just give them the R-S-T-L-N-E, and then... Now, we're going to let them choose a few extra things. We're going to pick a puzzle that we know they're going to get all of the RSTLNE, so it better still be difficult. So I want people to, that's sort of the basics, right? Cut out the sugar, don't excessively drink, um, you're getting most of your protein from fish, lots of veggies, eat the rainbow. That's sort of our RSTLNE. Now, one, first, before we go on to the additional things that we're going to add, why does that matter? Why is that our sort of the the main thing that most people in your field are going to agree on?
0: We're going to agree on that because it's going to do a, a few things that we think are going to help in terms of mental health and brain health, specifically eating in that what you're describing is a dietary pattern. And I think we should just call it a traditional dietary pattern because Mediterranean, I think, is I think it's in some ways like not being woke and, and I don't mean that about you. I just mean that in all of us, like every healthy diet, we're like Mediterranean. And it's like, okay, like that's the one most studied. but the same data, at least in mental health exists for the Japanese diet, for the Norwegian diet, for a traditional
1: diet. Ooh, then give um, me, how are you defining traditional? Is it whole foods um, in the way that your ancestors ate it and then thusly, whatever that is across all cultures should be relatively good. Or is there something else lurking in the word traditional?
0: I think there are a few things lurking in the word traditional. I think traditional foods, um, one had to be grown reasonably closely, and, and you didn't do much with them besides cut them up and, like, saute them, right, or, or, or boil them together. You were more efficient. You valued your food more. I mean, anybody listening who's grown their food, I, I, I try and grow some of our food, you walk out and, like, wow, that, that crop was there yesterday. Then the bugs ate it all, you know. I, it just—it was this moment of like, wow, to not to, to fail at this and then go hungry is something that none of us really experience anymore. So I, I think the things that exist, though, your question—the traditional diet—is one. Let's just talk about what's not there. All that, you know, those dietary principles that you talked about—they're they, not there. Uh, They—they are lacking, of course ultra-processed food. So everybody says these are evil just quickly because I think everyone knows. The reason I think they're evil is in the way that they tend to increase inflammation and inflammatory markers. That's bad. And when we think about things that people put in food that we have a response to, like, I don't know, carrageenan or food dyes or um, preservatives or pesticides. It's just stuff that we've never eaten before in mass quantities, and there is some physiological, artificial sweeteners. Okay, it's not sugar, but your body's like, wow, sugar, kind of, right? I don't think that's probably good for your pancreas. And so uh, so traditional diets are missing all of that stuff. They're missing seed oils and vegetable oils in the ways that we eat them. The major, when we say the, most Americans eat fat and sugar, what that means is glucose, liquid sugars, right? Which again leads to an insulin spike that leads to us adding on visceral adiposity and fat that is not just storage energy, that is metabolically active tissue that also produces and creates and makes inflammatory factors. By going traditional, you cut a lot of that out. You cut out trans fats. There are no all trans fats. There's vicinic acid um, and there's CLA, which are, are two kind of trans fats that are really interesting and probably healthy. But in terms of an all trans fats like we have in partially hydrogenated, cottonseed and sunflower and safflower, all these oils, you don't find those in nature. So you don't find those in traditional diets. And and so that's, that's the stuff that gets cut out. The stuff that gets in there, you just mentioned all of it, right? You just get more nutrient density. You get more phytonutrients. You get more diversity of plants. You get more diversity of animal proteins. Sure, you get more seafood, but you also get more bone broth, and you get more marrow. And... Um, so I think those are all the reasons traditional diets tend to win. And then there's the part, I talk about this in the book, it's the last step. I'm just going to give it away of our six week plan or my six week plan. Cause I have to make a plan, right? Um, uh, it, it is not about a food. It's about you connecting to your food roots, your food community. Cause the other thing that changes in traditional diets is, you know, who makes your food and you why share your that food matter? with people. I mean, Tom, you tell me why you think that matters. Like what's the difference for you when you sit around with a group of people and you cook something together or a farmer gives you a box of food or throws in something extra versus eating alone like slamming slamming your monster drinks.
1: Okay, well so let's not let's not quite go there because that one I will say is I could sit down with all the people in the world and we all share a monster and it's still going to be problematic. So I'll go to the beginning part of that question, which is really interesting. And this is somewhere you and I differ. And that's why I want to ask you about your horses, because I'm incredibly intrigued. All right. There's two types of people in the world. 98% of the world are forest bathers. They love to go walk in nature. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And it really does something to them psychologically. Then Uh there is 2%. I'm obviously making these percentages up. But there are city bathers. Now, Nothing makes me feel more creative or alive than a big city. I love being in New York. I love being in Tokyo. Um, So I may find that what you're trying to explain to me is the missing piece of my puzzle. But I don't have the intuitive connection. I don't seek out farmer's markets. That doesn't hold any interest to me. I don't care who the farmer is that gave it to me. I don't care where the food came from. If, If it tastes good and it's good for me at a cellular level, i'm all about it so it is interesting to me
0: yeah Tava. i mean i'd love i'd love if i could be a, a part of a piece to uh or oh. missing piece of a puzzle for you i can tell i can, I can tell you some of my associations and, and i'd love to know more about you because one I, I think it's important to honor that there are some people who just for whatever reason don't like these things and, and and, and, and I think we pathologize that. You put yourself in the 2%, right? It's almost like the 1%, like the people who don't like nature, like I don't like the forest bathing. What I always think is interesting as a psychiatrist, I think the tone that you're noting is my curiosity of like what, what that means to you, like when it started and also like how you've learned about it. And so I'd be really curious for you of, of any of those experiences like in nature that are good. And I think also we make this artificial. I love that thing you're talking about, too the city's been amazing for me. I've written four books in the city. I've become a psychiatrist. I've I've friends. I love to stay out late into the night and watch all of what happens as you mash people up without any of the inconveniences of nature. And I wonder if part of why it's not appealing to you is it's inconvenient. I've been living on a farm for the whole pandemic. I look like I have some issues. I'm covered in cuts and scrapes and and scars. I've been attacked by a rooster. I've um, uh, struggled with a new tractor. Um, I, it's, it's very inconvenient. It's very hard to grow food. It's very hard to be close to nature. But by not caring at all about where the calorie comes from, you're really kind of in that alpha predator status in some ways. That I, just, I, I mean, that's true about us. And I think there's probably some argument by not caring and just eating in the most efficient way. Like simplest calories, and I think you, I think there are interesting arguments around the efficiency of that. But I think from a mental health perspective, there there is something to the nature It'd be really interesting as you think about this piece of the puzzle for you. Like like what what enhances and allows you to enjoy nature. It's interesting. It's where like these new treatments are coming online in my field, like psilocybin mushrooms. Like one of the things that really often happens when people have psilocybin mushroom trips. There's now research about that uh, coming out of multiple major academic centers about how it influences depression. And anybody who's ever taken those things, like one of the things that they talk about and experience is, is this powerful feeling of being in nature, right? Of being connected. And the number one cause of, of disability, according to the World Health Organization worldwide, and now in the US as of 2020, before the end t- pandemic is depression. And so if you don't have a brain, you know, the goal of my work is really to get people as a psychiatrist back into grow mode, right? Where you're connecting, whether for you, I wouldn't focus on the country and the nature. I'd keep that in my back pocket. But the way the food relates to this is the brain is not really in grow mode. And there's not a ton of data behind this, Tom. I mean, there's some, right? BDNF is like a new popular molecule everyone listening should know about. It's this idea your brain grows in adult life. Like when I tell people I'm a psychiatrist, people think, They think my favorite molecule is serotonin. It's like actually, it's like I don't know. Like serotonin's fine brain molecule, right? But like, why serotonin over dopamine? Like, what about GABA? What about
1: glutamate? It's like okay, BDNF rules them all because it makes your brain produce new brain cells. So what I want to understand is what's going Mm -hmm. on, either in the brain or the gut or elsewhere, that makes. Going to the farmer's market, knowing the guy that gives you the food, knowing the farm that your food, knowing, not even just that, hey, it was close, actually knowing those people. So it seemed like Mm -hmm. such an interesting insight. I wanted to see um, what's going on neurologically or at the gut level that makes that matter.
0: You know, all the loneliness data, how loneliness is like the new heart disease. Uh, Our our new surgeon general, Vivek Murthy, wrote a book on loneliness that the Uh, I think that food connects us, and as I said earlier, there's a really simple lesson in biology one-on-one. Everybody in college had this lesson, structure equals function. You look at a cell under the microscope, and, and its structure tells you something about itself. So what's the structure of a brain cell? Structure of a brain cell is about making connections. The idea being, if we take this lesson of connection, I think farmer's markets and knowing where your food comes from is, is one aspect of eating for improved, better, better mental health. And I think it does help people connect. I, I see this a lot. I, I was shrink I'm shrinking in New York City. People move in all the time from out of the city, and it's a really lonely, scary place. You go, And if you can go to the farmer's market and you're with people and you're interacting with people, it, it's not like it's a panacea. But I think it gives people uh, uh, one option to connect. I think what's much more important than that is focusing on the foods and the nutrients and the way of shifting people's eating away from calories towards nutrient density and traditional dietary patterns. And I hope influencing them with this new science. So we think about uh, around how food actually helps treat clinical depression or can help treat clinical depression, allows us to really talk about this in a much more definitive way. Because we know a lot of people listening, I mean, 40 million Americans have uh, clinical anxiety, Uh, something like 18 million Americans have depression, but let's just say, you know, the lifetime incident of depression, uh, pretty high. I mean, at one point, if you looked at data, like, uh, I always want to get the study right, but I remember I saw a shocking statistic years ago that it was something like a quarter of women of childbearing age were taking an antidepressant. Whoa. And so you you see well the, this you know it it seems high but the the regular statistic just of the whole population is about twelve percent eleven to twelve percent and it seems high right but it's sort of hard as a psychiatrist to see those numbers and some of that says well it's good that people are getting treatment you know like what do those numbers mean and 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 what we also know is no matter. Uh, um, how many folks are or aren't taking meds, a lot of people aren't getting into full remission. I think that's where food comes in. And so you can see where nutritional psychiatry, I think is really important that if I then ask you, hey, you're living on energy drinks and Diet Coke, I'm going to at least hit the brakes before I do anything and say, okay, like, (laughs) I
1: don't know. Have you heard about traditional diets, Tom? Yeah, that's where it starts to get interesting to me is you can shape your physiology. So when I think about what I was doing to my microbiome and what ended up changing my behaviors is, like you were saying earlier, if you can get people to understand what's happening, then you might be able to get them to start making changes. And so once I understood, like I didn't know, at the time I was drinking the um, the Monsters, I didn't know that the microbiome existed. I had never heard the word because the one thing life has taught me is that just when you think you understand, you realize there's some much larger connection. So you do a really good job in the book of giving people exactly the things that they should be doing. So we've talked about a big chunk of it already. So we know we're gonna be focused on whole foods, talked about a traditional diet, defined what that is, which is actually really interesting. One thing that um, I have never, uh, that's not quite true. I've never heard anybody talk about it as clearly as you with um, bivalve foods. And yeah, getting into the some of the, the things that we can do that are seafood based. And then also you're sort of putting it in historical context of we probably didn't come up on the grasslands. And I'd love to hear more about that and sort of how that led you to realizing that there's potential big benefits to seafood.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's a great question, Tom. I think quickly, it's just the notion of nutrient density, meaning what nutrients are you getting for the calories you're eating? If, if calories make us you know, fat, as, as a doctor, I was confronting that a lot, or obese, right? We want fewer of those. Well, we, we still need all the nutrients for our brain. Then all this data started coming out about the omega-3 fats when I was a resident. And we're all like talking about fish oil, and I was kind of into integrative stuff, and I didn't eat fish. And anytime I see something kind of like with you, <laughs> I was like, and it... And I said, well, where do all these fish oil omega threes come from? And like, they obviously come from fish. And I'm like, all right. Well, if I'm I'm going to be like a brain healthy guy and eat this way, and I'm a low fat vegetarian, I need to add in this disgusting food, fish, seafood. So I slowly added this in. Living in New York, because you realize, well, you're on a coast, and I had all these friends who were chefs, and I and I really started finding ways that I liked seafood. And the reason is that nutrient density, when we think about brain health, comes down to B vitamins, magnesium, iron. We did a research study, a really small study that I did with Dr. Laura Lachance, who's also a psychiatrist, where we just said, if we look at all the literature, what are the 12 nutrients that are most important for brain health, and specifically depression? That's the most debilitating disease. Like, Does something stand out? And there are 12 nutrients that had really, as we went through like levels of evidence, significant data of both epidemiological studies, but also clinical trials. We took those 12 nutrients, and I think this is the most important thing people miss. We turned them into food. We asked, what foods have the most of these nutrients, and you mentioned bivalves, so usually with these scales, like the ANDY, the Aggregate Nutrient Density Index, it's all plants, because plants always have fewer calories, and I didn't like that, because 98% of people eat meat or seafood, and and I was curious, so we listed all the plants, and they're what you'd expect, lots of leafy greens and rainbows, but in the animals, three of the top five are bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters, and when when we're
1: talking about that scale, these are things that contain the 12 um, key nutrients. they contain the most,
0: they're the foods with the most of these 12 nutrients. So I know that number one on the plants is watercress which is really, uh, you know, uh, kind of leads for leafy greens, but so are all lettuces, kale, uh, collards, kale is like number 12 or 15, red peppers, pomelo. And so that's the way I get to these foods is through nutrient density. That then leads us to food categories. And so the bivalves in seafood are a food category because they're the most concentrated and only source of long-chained omega-3 fats. The omega-3 fats we make them in our liver a little bit when we eat plant omega-3 fats but there's reasonable data especially when you think things like the pregnancy data like women who eat more fish their babies tend to have like higher verbal iqs um and less behavioral That's actually been like tested. Nine, yeah nine verbal iq points if you feed pregnant women Whoa. if you give them salmon um there have been some really i'd love to do a hardcore data deep dive with you because i'm really curious what you think about the studies but. Uh, there's a variety of data that if you feed kids, pregnant moms, and individuals more seafood, you see lower rates of depression and bipolar disorder. Actually, one of the first studies in nutritional psychiatry looked around the world at intakes of seafood and found that cultures that eat more seafood have lower rates of bipolar illness.
1: Do you know what the Uh, mechanism is going on there? Is it just the brain Uh, is starved for quality fat or –
0: no, I would, well, I would say that let's think about the functions of those fats. EPA, structural fat, but also like the 007 fat, because it functions to create all these things called resolvins and neuroprotectins, which that just sounds good. I want more of that, like resolving that inflammation and neuroprotectin, like that's literally what they do. DHA against structural fat about seven to eight percent of dry weight of the human brain is DHA It's the longest fat you eat and then epa is more functional epa is kind of it is like aspirin when you take a lot of epa You increase your bleeding time as we said in my first book the happiness diet happiness diet It makes your blood kind of silky smooth so less clotting less inflammatory response and epa eicosapentaenoic acid gives rise to eicosanoids eicosanoids are they're like the, um, I don't know, the specialist agents in our immune system, right? Where they, they're like snipers. They, they basically regulate the immune response and it's more specific than other inflammatory factors the, um, that come from the omega-6 uh, fats, which are more like the SWAT team or more like the Marines. where like, we're going to save you, but there's going to be a big mess. And And so that's where... We always say wild salmon, right, or fish oil pill, but part of making this list of foods and other things on there are wild meats, organ meats, is to kind of create a conversation. It's not like you got to eat all these foods. And and then to do the shift into what are called food categories.
1: Whether you eat watercress or kale or arugula or collards, eat leafy greens. So I don't know how familiar you are with um, Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Um, he's probably the most extreme dietitian I've spoken to. And he talks about getting people all the way down to a diet that includes, he prefers pure vegan um, and no oil, no salt, no sugar. And he's the first person I've heard sort of be anti um, olive oil. What's your yeah, take on, yeah. especially olive oil and what's salt? My, what's my take on extreme
0: veganism? I, I think that. In terms of olive oil and salt, I'll tell you this. Salt, like cholesterol, like saturated fat, is a real red herring. For people who are eating salt from the salt shaker and eating natural foods, the only thing you need to worry about is getting enough salt. For people who are eating processed foods, where 95% of sodium consumption in America comes from, right? that's where it comes from. It's things like tortilla shells. It's things, um, uh, you know, it's in everything. It's in soda. So these, uh, so that's where I come down on salt. And the reason it's an issue is we have so much obesity, we have so much high blood pressure and diabetes, that, and people are eating processed foods. In terms of olive oil, I just really think the folks who are pushing the extreme low-fat diet probably that thing you're talking about how kind i am i struggle with that sometimes because i think there are a lot of people who aren't clinicians who don't see patients i'm not saying this doctor is one of them and who don't understand the implications of their very harsh inaccurate and not evidence-based advice and it's where i really have always been in a milieu that if you're going to say a food helps somebody with a serious illness like depression or heart disease like you need to have some evidence behind you other than just clinical experience so i think it's hard to prove that consumption of fats is bad for human health i haven't seen that in the data i've seen no data that also olive oil separates out in any way i've certainly seen data that trans fats again man-made fats are bad i I think saturated fats are a big family of fats that do a lot of things like they have antibiotic properties how does that affect our microbiome like same Mm -hmm. thing as those phytonutrients like I'm not sure it's just all the fiber and all that stuff. We're also taking in all these really interesting antibacterial and antiviral compounds when we eat plants. And those certainly shape our microbiome. That's actually, you know, we all say blueberries and blackberries work by like, um, you know, anthocyanins are so good for the brain. Nature published the study that anthocyanins prune the gut and lead to changes in the gut that lead to change in kind of serotonin dyami- dynamics that lead to the changes in the brain. It's not like the anthocyanins are up here. It's that they're working down in the gut.
1: And so... I was going to ask, do you do microbiome testing when you have somebody coming to you? Yeah, I do this really, really advanced medical procedure
0: um, where I ask them what they eat. And when you tell me what you eat and a little bit about your medical history, it's not 100%, but it's certainly accurate in the sense that it doesn't change... we only look at tests, if it's gonna change our recommendation. And um, so I don't test microbiome. What I want to hear is diversity of plants and what fermented foods do you eat. And if, if I don't hear anything about that, I'm gonna try and add those in gently. And then it, I think sometimes like a month probiotic supplement is an interesting idea. As I say in the book and I say throughout all of my work, work, you can't have good brain health without good gut health. But I think that, again, this is the kind of thing that gets a little, I would say, manipulated, right? Where people, as opposed to turning to food and things that they can do, there's this idea we need an expensive test and lots and lots of probiotics. And I don't know, it kind of it goes back to that connection thing. Like The microbiome of the soil leads to the microbiome of the, the plant, right? Like sauerkraut. I remember the first time I made sauerkraut. It reminded me of this lesson in medical school when they're telling them that bacteria was everywhere all over every surface of everything and I looked down and like every medical student looked down and we look at our hands and and the, you know the professor Mark Braun sort of smiled and he's like, that's right you're covered in a layer of bacteria too it's everywhere And like how you make sauerkraut, you just chop up a cabbage and all the bacteria that are naturally on there fermented and you know it's sort of a it's this interesting really cy- interesting cycle between us and the bugs.
1: All right, so I want to get into that cycle now. So you're somebody who was living in New York, thriving practice. Um, did does one of your parents have um, signs of cognitive decline? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah,
0: I mean that's yeah, both of my
1: parents. I mean, both my parents are
0: in their 80s, and, and definitely there's some there's been some cognitive decline on on, uh, uh, on both ends. Um, so
1: you move in to their farm in Indiana. And now from what I hear, you're not going back to New York after years of living on the farm, you're now going to Wyoming? So I'm running this romantic notion in my head. If you take the kids out of the big city, they're on the farm, they're more connected, they know the neighbors, they're out playing in the dirt, they're, everybody's feeling better, you're feeling more connected to nature. Yes, you're covered in scratches and scars, but man, like being there, working with your hands, being around the animals, making your own like, you know, goat's milk kefir and all that, and you're just like, we can't ever go back. And now we're gonna, you know, find something, maybe that's a little closer to a small city but we still want to keep this lifestyle is that actually what happened because i think you have to talk about your horse i think what you described is why
0: i moved out of the city is accurate in what i experienced Um, I was living in New York with my uh, wonderful wife and two wonderful kids and living in this kind of box-to-box, great urban existence. I rode my one-speed bicycle at a sprint through Central Park on my way to work in a beautiful Upper West Side building where I have a great office. And we have a great network of friends and and all the stuff that New York offers. And something was just not feeling right. I, I don't know how to describe it. I started going back to the farm more on the summers. I started really as you try and do that and you're not there every day, it's hard to farm and garden. It's just an everyday thing, it's, it's a it's a meditative process in a real way that, I don't know how to describe it, it's just you really, you have to check in every day. And there aren't many things like that anymore than like email. And, and I think there is also something about the natural rhythm that with the kids, and my own kind of stress level. Again, not that there's anything wrong with raising kids in a city. It just, you know, the part that really pushed it for me, Tom is I got tired of shushing my children because children are supposed to make noise and I love the noise they make. I love all the songs. I love the screams. And the idea that I as a parent was Shh, guys, like some rando neighbor downstairs is upset that I have children. I just couldn't handle that anymore. It felt oppressive. And so I did find all of that in the country. And, and, and you asked about my horse and, and my, my horse, my daughter started, as we moved to the country, started riding, I, I'd owned horses since I was a kid. I've always loved horses. And and, um, I, and then as she started riding, um, it was nice. And I went to some horse shows and, and then when the pandemic hit and it was pretty emotional and I'm seeing lots of patients, I, I, my wife started riding and really, and she hadn't ridden much and was, I would say nervous and scared. And it really did something for her. And just emotionally, and then I started riding, and I'd ridden as a kid, but I'd never been like with a like a real trainer to really teach you how to ride a horse. And within a few months, I'm like jumping a horse over two two and a half feet like jumps, and you go from this like being scared to having some I wouldn't say mastery, but just being challenged. And then it's like a lot of things I do, like surfing and snowboarding. It it really it's this feeling kind of a flying where you hit this really altered state where you in this animal or kind of in this space and where you're thinking I love about it, it's like you're thinking about how much your little toe is cramping and hurts or that the canter is like a little bit like wonky and you don't know why you know I don't think we can discover that without time out, outside of the city we both love so it was a place I put myself to go between these two contrasting worlds as I, I guess I wondered the question you're wondering what if it's great for me? What in my family? What if it, what if, what does it feel like? What do I learn there?
1: It's interesting, man. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know your work and your thoughts and now certainly getting to ask you things directly. There's, I, I see you as a vanguard of what I think we may have to do to unwind, uh, where people are mentally right now. And I'll lay it out as I see you and you tell me if I'm sort of on the path here. Um, Obviously I love cities and cities have brought us both a lot of things. I love modern living, it's brought us a lot of things. I even love social media, it's brought me a lot of things including um, tremendous business success. But I also see that there's a downside to that and that social media can be outright dangerous that city living has so obscured a a historical or traditional way of life where we have literally developed genetically to be in that kind of environment and we're now once removed and you look at skyrocketing depression, you look at skyrocketing anxiety, you look at um, you know a lot of the sort of pathologized things that that there is a beautiful side to but there's also the potential for it to spill into the pathological and Seeing people who are successfully unwinding that sounds a lot like what you do. Whole food, first and foremost. Um, Making sure that you're eating diversity, managing for the microbiome, steering what you eat by how you feel psychologically, which is something that I think until this movement of nutritional psychiatry came along was such a disconnect and people had no sense of how the two things come together. And so when we before we started rolling and you joked and said that your psychiatrist was a little jealous of your horse and you were joking, of course, but saying like, you know, I get more out of my horse. And I thought there's probably truth in that joke of just you're you're doing something that makes you to use your words, feel more connected, to use my word, more grounded. Tom, I
0: really I think it means that we want to continue the conversation. I'm really curious about. I feel like we have a similar set of questions because I think there is there is going to be a revolution, I think, in how we're living. I think uh, in terms of really people who are wanting to optimize their health, not wanting to squeeze in a two-week vacation someplace nice in the sun, but to live a life where there's more nature and more exercise and more groundedness and connectedness. And I think the pandemic's really accentuated that. I think food is one of those pieces of it that we have a lot of control over it's why i like it as a factor in mental health i think it's where it's different than our other treatments right whether prozac works for you or zoloft or lithium like we're both crossing our fingers when i prescribe those that they they work and they do for a lot of people and they don't for some people same thing with psychotherapy uh and you don't really control that too much a little bit but Whether food can work for you, whether there's nourishment or whether there are certain nutrients that your brain needs that really most Americans aren't getting, I think uh, that's one of the things that connects. We're talking about a rural city, you know, kind of urban divide. One thing that's interesting is both of those places have horrible mental health crises. It's not like country living is like free of depression and anxiety. Um, and, and another thing that connects that is as much as there is a wellness movement, the general American diet in both of those places is just really atrocious and damaging to brain health. And so um, but I like that we're ending with unanswered questions. That's always the sign of a conversation. Well, the the I, interesting
1: thing is I think there are a lot of remaining questions. But what I see in you and what I hope people will take away from this interview is that there is like there is you can't just give people a pill. Right. For the sort of ultimate solution here but you have very prescriptive things that people can do. You know, We've walked through what they can do with the food, we've walked through some of the things that they can do with lifestyle, and until you have tried all those, my hope is that people don't lose hope. I mean, I think that's also the most important point, point, and it's
0: just that people don't
1: lose hope. I mean,
0: I have I, treated people with every type of mental illness, and it's actually what gives me hope. It's what gives me strength and resilience. I've just seen people who have it uh, so hard, with what happens in their minds and to see them just do amazing things start companies have families transcend it get sober whatever it is for that part it's just it makes me very hopeful everybody listening should have hope no matter where you are whether food helps you or not or whether you want to eat some of these foods or not that, that there is a path forward and, and there's always a path forward. i think tom your story really demonstrates that of just the i think oftentimes we think about wellness in, as a moment in time and we forget about our own personal development and evolution development is one of those words we use in adolescence and i think we've just forgotten that so much complex development happens in adulthood uh, and and to really honor that and encourage that in ourselves and in each other and I, and i hope i hope my book really Pushes people towards that with food, you know. Not that there's exactly the right, perfect, brain-healthy diet, but for you there is. There are those foods that work for you. They're the foods that hopefully include some of these power players in my book, like red beans and olive oil and bivalves and fatty fish that we talked about, and lots of dark chocolate. We didn't talk about dark chocolate. It's one of my big favorites. Um, so, and I think that does make a difference. It's like that little step that helps motivate
1: us and keep us going and inspire us. No question.
0: Dude, where can people
1: find you? I assume the book is available everywhere books are sold.
0: That is 100% true. Uh, People can find me on the Internet at my website, DrewRamseyMD.com. I'm also on Instagram where I'm pretty active as DrewRamseyMD. And we've got some great pre-order incentives for the book that people can sign up for on our website. And if clinicians are interested in this and want to learn how to be a nutritional psychiatrist, we have the first course where people can become trained to do this kind of work. And, Tom, thank you so much. I hope everybody will will, will check out the book. And, and I really appreciate your support of nutritional psychiatry and, and personal optimization and more grounding and being open about how we really can be empowered to take care of our mental health and our brain health. And that really is our biggest asset.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing the book. And, guys, definitely check it out. I think that what he's touching on in nutritional psychiatry is the future. It's critically important. And if you're struggling with any sort of mental illness, don't let there be a stigma. Know that there are options. And this book is a phenomenal place to start. All right. Speaking of phenomenal places to start, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.